Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast, which presents the interviews from our live shows in Minneapolis. Our show today is all about economics, and we have two guests. The first is Chris Farrell, who is an economics editor of Marketplace Money on NPR. He's also a contributor to numerous economic publications and the author of several books. Our second guest is Timothy Taylor, who is the managing editor of the Journal of Economic Perspectives. He is also a lecturer with the Great Courses Plus, so you may have heard his voice before talking about economics. I hope you enjoy the show. Our media sponsor this season is MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can read local, state, and national news at MinPost.com. I invited you both on the show uh, several months ago. I said, you know, uh, join us on... Ooh, thank you. Uh, did you all want something? Um, <laughs> After. <laughs> so I, I invited you all, and I said, oh, well, we're going to do the show in May, but I'm guessing there will still be economic news in May for us to talk about. But, well, why don't we just start with a big overall picture? The economy's great, right? Like, Larry Kudlow was on uh, Meet the Press this weekend, and he says everything is peaches and sunshine. So, what, can we just say that and take our ankylosaurus home, or what? So, I would say from one measure, the economy is good. It's not great, but it is good. And it's the only measure of the economy that really matters, and that is we have a relatively tight labor market. 3.9% unemployment rate. Now, it's a little bit deceptive because there are still people coming in from the sidelines, people who were laid off during the Great Recession the last couple of years, had trouble finding a job. So there's still, you know, the technical economic term is slack in the labor market. I use Nonetheless, that app. I use that app. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a good, it's very helpful. You know, yeah. you can sort of, but the thing about it is, is that this is an economy where there are jobs being created and where people who, you know, in 2010, in 2014, would not get hired, they are getting hired today. And so by that definition, it is a good economy. I'd just add to that that um, some of you might remember what it was like 10 years ago in 2008, uh, September of 2008 in particular. I legitimately thought there was a, a real chance that the U.S. economy might not just have a recession, but might collapse in a way that we haven't seen since the Great Depression. The month of September was a terrible month. I'd never thought I would see anything like it in the U.S. economy. And so when people grouse about the economy now, what I tend to think about are the generations of college students who graduated in 09, 010, 011, 012, 013 into lousy, lousy job markets year after year. Um, believe me, the current graduates are a whole lot happier about the economy they're facing. So why is it, why are things going, so, because I, I'll just put, I'm going to just name the ankylosaurus in the room, which is just, people were saying, uh, oh, uh, President Trump is elected, uh, chaos, panic, like nobody will know what's happening because he's such an X factor. Um, he still is. <laughs> I, <laughs> has he done something since we got on stage? I'm sure like, yeah, I'm But sure. I, I, I is, so, A, was that just sort of a, a misconception of, like, how much the president maybe matters in terms of the economy? Or does he deserve credit for how much things are, are going? So, I mean, this is a long economic expansion. This economy has been growing at a 2% average annual rate. Sometimes it's a little bit above that. Sometimes it's a little bit below that. But that has just been the rate. And so gradually the unemployment rate has come down and businesses are doing better. But no, I think what one of the problems that we had uh, with looking at Trump and all the things that he's doing is you kind of expect a collapse. 
a crisis. Things are going to happen. I think a lot of the things that are going on are a gradual erosion of some of the underlying dynamism of the economy, like with immigration. That erodes the underlying dynamism of the economy, the uncertainty that's surrounding our trade policy. That has an effect on where businesses and people invest their money. But it doesn't collapse overnight. Institutions are relatively durable. There's momentum to the economy. And you know life goes on. But you have to worry about the underlying erosion of the fundamentals. Um, I, I'd add to that that I usually think of the economy sort of like an ocean liner, and it has just an enormous amount of momentum. If you go back um, and you look at, say, the unemployment rate or um, the stock market or all kinds of things from about 2010 on, it's almost a straight line right through Trump's inauguration. And so um, that comes as a surprise if you think that the, um, the president gets up every morning and runs the economy. But that isn't, of course, what happens. I I like to say that the U.S. economy is what happens when 150 million people get up and go to work in the morning. And the day before and the day after the election, about 150 million people got up and went to work. And that's momentum. That doesn't just change real quickly. Uh, one thing, we, we were talking a little before the show, and uh, Chris, you actually brought up, I remember hearing over and over again, particularly during the Obama years, oh, but you know, business and the markets hate uncertainty, right? Like they, they don't know how is this whole healthcare bill gonna like play out? What if like taxes go up? Oh, and it's not so much that those things are bad, it's just the uncertainty makes them very uneasy and not willing to invest. Like, I again, without uh, saying one way or the other, I don't think that you could call President Trump anything but uncertain. uncertain. On you could a call lot him Mr. Things. Uncertain, yeah. yes. Yeah, that could uh, be the tagline. So, but. Business seems to be very happy in a lot of cases. So I, which which of those myths dies then, I guess? Well, I think the uncertainty myth dies. I mean, the notion is you... So under the Obama administration, you're right, people who didn't like the Affordable Care Act. So they'd come out and say, business is uncertain. They don't know where to invest because, you know, are we going towards socialism? And you'd hear all that kind of stuff. And now people go, well, now we're in a much more certain environment. What? Okay, I mean, I mean now seriously, what certainty in the environment? Are we in a trade war with China? Are we not in a trade war in China? Are we renegotiating the North American Free Trade Agreement? What about, oh yeah, are we doing these tariffs with Germany or not? I mean, what is going on? And so I think it comes down to taxes have been cut, there have been regulations that have been cut, and, uh, and, and then, so in business, basically likes those things, and also the fact is, as you're saying, it's the momentum. I mean, is there a, you're a professor, you've been teaching for a long time. Is there a way to teach this? Like, how do you teach the course on, you know what, everybody is just sort of happy or, like, in a good mood, and so they're well, going to invest. There's a long, a long literature, which I'm not a big fan of, but uh, it, people talk about business confidence. So that's one of the things you'll see, like, in the, business, in the newspapers or something. There'll be a survey. They actually do surveys of all the business executives, and they say, you know, are you optimistic, pessimistic on a scale of 1 to 10? There are all these all these numbers. And speaking as an academic economist, I hate these surveys because I feel like they just tell you like what the person, you know, had for lunch that day. They don't really give you any well-considered idea. I want to look at prices. I want to look at quantities. I don't want to look at somebody telling me they're happy or they're not happy. But, um, but that said, um, you know, an awful lot of stuff right about when Trump was elected. I mean, you go back to, you know, between the election and inauguration day, there were a whole lot of people saying, you know, boy, the economy is just about to go down a black hole. I mean, the market's about to go. The uncertainty is going to be remarkably high. And those, those predictions were wrong. 
um, you know, the, things continued on. And, and I've come around to a, an uncomfortable belief that there were a lot of business people who were really, really unhappy with the way things were. And um, I'm not, you know, judging the rightness or wrongness of it all, but, but boy, um, things turned, things got very hot and very enthusiastic almost as soon as Trump took office. And so. just to add to this, you know, uh, and of course the stock market went up during the Obama administration, but there's that old expression, you know, follow the money. So a lot of CEO compensation of the big companies, you know, the commanding heights are tied to the stock market. Well, stock market's been doing well for much of the, of the administration. You got all these stock buybacks that are going on. So that, you know, I don't know if that makes you happy, but it does kind of improve your mood. <laughs> I, I, and do we know, well, I mean, this is sort of a, just a different way of asking the same question, but why is the stock market sort of doing as well as, as it is. I, I graduated in college in 2007, so a year before it would have just been the worst. But, uh, you know, it was still like I lived through stock market going up and down, and now it's just like, oh, it just goes up forever, it seems like. Well, I mean, one of the... Stand- that's my investment strategy, by the way. <laughs> right. it, it will just go Hope up forever. Hope it goes up forever. That's and make sure it's indexed. That's, that's, low that's cost, a winner. Broad that's based. a winner. Um, so a standard way of looking at the stock market is you look at the price of all the stocks and you compare that to the profits companies are earning or the earnings of companies. That's called a price-earnings ratio. And you can look at price-earnings ratios over time. And right about now, the prices of stocks compared to the profits they're making are higher than they've been at any point except for two points in U.S. history. One is 1929, right before the crash, and the other is 2000, right before the crash. Wait, oh, um, and oh. so um, <laughs> And so um, I think that... My own sense is that um, markets have a huge amount of momentum. They have so much momentum that they get a little irrational. And one of the things that um, John Maynard Keynes used to say is you always need to remember the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Um, So it's hard to bet against things like that. They can go on and on and on and on. (laughs) Um, But at some point, when prices are here and profits are here, they won't stay there forever. So I think it's fair to say that, you know, this long upward run since 2010 is closer to the end than the beginning. Well, let's get a little wonky with this, because one of the markers that folks look at a lot is, well, uh, with all of the, everybody, you know, the market making all this money, shouldn't we be seeing more inflation at some point? Or shouldn't what prices... inflation? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why don't we see... We don't actually even have, if I, correct me if I'm wrong... The inflation that people think is healthy, like, for us right. to have. Well, and, you know, if you look at U.S. history, the U.S. largely has been a low inflation, deflationary economy, except for during war and during this period during the 1970s. So one sort of simple answer is we've actually gone back to, to our historic norm, which is a relatively low inflation economy. But I think, the, you know, the really interesting question is the Fed for the past five years, six years, has been trying to get that inflation rate to 2%, and they can't do it. Well, the question is, can you get the inflation rate to 2% in a world of Amazon.com? Okay, where, you're going to have to unpack some of this. Okay, like. so <laughs> if you take a look what Amazon is doing, it's putting enormous... So, One thing where business always complains about inflation, but they love inflation because you take out the retail marker and you raise your prices by 5%, 10%, 15%. Love that environment. Now, you can't do that in a world where Amazon is coming into your market. So you're at the grocery store business. Now Amazon's moving in. Now the grocery stores have to invest more to compete against Amazon, and at the same time they can't raise their prices. And then you spread that throughout the economy. But it's not just Amazon. It's a lot of the inflation technologies that have become such a large part of our lives don't have a big impact 
upward on prices. And so I think that in a global economy, and we are in a global economy, intensely competitive, with this information and technology on top, have we moved toward a world where inflation and interest rates are relatively low? And we're, we're actually, or another way of saying it is, are we going back to where we were before in history? Hmm. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, Janet Yellen, who was then chairman of the Fed, um, gave, a, gave a speech about the great challenges for macroeconomics in the next few years. And one of her four great challenges was what causes inflation. And I thought to myself, great, the chair of the Fed is saying <laughs> it's a great challenge what causes inflation. <laughs> that's, that's not what you want Point to hear. Two. What <laughs> is economics? <laughs> it, was, it was not a reassuring moment, but... Uh, I mean, following up, and, and so I mean, I do think uh, among you know highest level professional economists, uh, you know, not just in the U.S. but the World Bank and the European Central Bank, all those places, um, the question of what causes inflation is actually a thought of as being really hard because they keep saying, and this is sort of if you think about since about 2000, you know, the economy took off with a housing boom, hardly any inflation. We yeah. get a huge drop in deep, deep recession. Hardly any disinflation. We get a big bounce back over seven years. Hardly any inflation. And at some point you think, well, what does cause inflation? I mean, you're going up and down this roller coaster. And so um, Chris's answer is, I think, one of the good ones, that you can actually do a graph if you want to spend a lot of time at <laughs> certain government websites. Um, where This is what you do. This yeah, is what I, I, say. This is what I do for you, fun. Okay? Yeah, you so, have like a tenure position to just so, spend time um, on this. So um, if you can do a graph of inflation, you know, that's easy enough. But one of the things they look at in the price statistics is just the price of stuff that's sold online. So just what would inflation be if you only looked at what was sold online? And that actually is declining over time. It's not just it's not even a little inflation, it's actually dropping in absolute price. And over is that time. the Amazon? And effect? that's Amazon, Amazon in large effect. part. Amazon yeah. is, is the is the majority, I think, of that. So And is well, just to try and uh, finish this circle, is it then that Amazon pushes all of the prices down enough that they just eat everything, and then we all like live and work right. in Amazon. But then also world. your your expectation. I mean, remember what do consumers do? They 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 shop around and they do price comparison. And so if you can get it cheaper on Amazon, you do at Amazon. But if you can get it at, at another place, you'll you'll do it cheaper. So again, these information technologies don't seem to. You know, don't seem to lead to higher prices. They lead actually to lower prices. And over time, people then become used to prices not going up that much, except for certain things like education and healthcare. Mm. But in other parts of the economy, the expectation is, hey, you're going to charge me a higher price. You know what? I mean, they're not going to buy that thing. And there has been a shift in consumer spending from things to experiences where you're oh. seeing some uh, actually some some ability to raise prices is on tourism and travel and some of these things that provide experiences the restaurant experience I feel like we should raise ticket prices all of a sudden absolutely. I think absolutely <laughs> you should if you you know how do musicians now make their money it's through it's not on yeah. the nobody uh, makes their money off recorded music re- anymore no. except for I should say superstars. for the first time we have t-shirts for sale in the back so um, <laughs> From China, probably, right? <laughs> and, and Dennis, can just, you can just play. And... I can just play. Live, Let me ask, so a different, uh, yes, thank you, uh, is pushing uh, in another direction. We mentioned already we have 3.9% unemployment, very low. 
Shouldn't it be then that uh, businesses are are panicking and they want uh, us as workers to work for them so much that they're just throwing money at us in order? But that doesn't seem to be happening either, right? Wage growth has not increased. Yeah, there's been a few false starts there where um, where even people um, I'm thinking of people with you know good democratic economist credentials were saying back in 2014, 2015, oh maybe it's coming, maybe wages are about to take off, maybe they're about to come. Oh no, I guess not. And then 2000, oh maybe they're coming, maybe they're coming, but but not so much. Um, we were talking before the show, and Chris was pointing out that lots of businesses are offering, like, signing bonuses, or they're offering more perks, like paying for travel to certain things, or they're offering uh, even annual bonuses at the end of the year, but they're pushing really hard against raising the wage that you'd have to pay year after year after year. And so it's, it's actually sort of a parlor game among economists that whenever a uh, you know, whenever a businessman says, well, I just can't get people to fill this job, the economist will say, well, have you raised the wage? And the person will say, well, no, you know, we're not actually doing, let's not get crazy. <laughs> so, um, but, but at some point, that dam, you know, at least begins to leak a little, if not outright break. So. And I think that's right. The other thing that, uh, and I don't know if there's a way of measuring this, but is, you know, how much damage has been done to, to people in the job market who lost their jobs in that 2008, 2009, 2010, been very difficult to get back into the job market. And so to some extent, uh, business has, has that's another way that business has managed to keep, you know, it's lit on and that people are really actually afraid to be asking for the kind of wages that you would expect they are right now because um, they're figuring, well, you know, if, if I ask for too much, I could be without a job, and I don't want to go back to where I was. Uh, Let me ask one other just vexing one, which is uh, actually maybe more from the business side. Uh, There's a long-term trend, again, correct me if I'm wrong, that productivity among workers has not gone up. For, for a very long time, which seems insane if you think about it, right? Like, uh, uh, we all have these things in our pocket which can, like, basically do seemingly all the work that it used to take, like, a factory of people, like, a month to do. And we can, like, sort of just, like, hit some things and, like, send it off. And yet, we haven't... This, this and sort of the computer technology revolution hasn't actually seen a very much of an increase in productivity among workers. Are there... Why... Well, one, one answer might be if, you know, you, you think about your smartphone, there's one theory that's out there. It's really intriguing that what a lot of these inf- latest uh, information technologies, Twitter, Facebook, what they've really done is increase the productivity of entertainment. But they have not increased the productivity of business. And But what I actually think more that is what's going on is that the delayed effect and we're creating an infrastructure of algorithms, of robots, of information technologies, of big data, and it's taking longer than we expect when you look at the potential power and people make these forecasts and this is going to happen and the robots are going to be the nurses and and the robots are going to be the fast food restaurateurs and we're going to have autonomous driving trucks and you make these forecasts, but it takes a long time actually to make these transitions for people to move up the learning curve, to make the investments. So the classic example is electricity. And uh, there's this famous moment when um, uh, Henry Adams, and he's in the 1900, it's uh, the French Expo, and he sees these giant dynamos that create electricity. He says, you know, I have seen the future. 
But at that point, there wasn't actually that much electricity around. And it took another, what, 40 years, really, for electricity to have an effect in the factory. Hmm. So one way of looking at what's going on is that we're in the midst of creating this new infrastructure. We think it's going to happen tomorrow. Lots of people make these forecasts of massive unemployment because of technology. And the fact is, it takes a long time to bring about that kind of change. But when it happens, it's going to be big. So I, I tend to agree with that, but let me give you the pessimistic view. Please. <laughs> um, this is economics. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we don't want anyone getting too happy yeah, out there. <laughs> dismal science, everybody. Drink. Uh. <laughs> um, there's a, a prominent economist named Robert Gordon at Northwestern who wrote a big book on this a few years ago. And what Bob likes to say is he um, remembers the, a line uh, due to guy a few years back who said, I was hoping for, uh, you know, drive rocket-powered cars, and instead what I got was 140 characters. And, um, and his point is that we think of ourselves as having all this magic in our hands, but the magic is 140 characters. It's yeah. not rocket-powered cars. And so um, perhaps we're being overly enticed by the bright lights and the little bells and whistles, and it's feeding little dopamine things in our brain, but actually it's not really adding to our productivity. There's some people who argue that the productivity slowdown kicks in just about the time it became possible to play Minesweeper at your office desk. Um, and there's actually a fairly decent correlation there wow. that we may not be spending our time at the office as wisely as we once did. Um, Robert would also argue that, um, that um, the single biggest um, decade of technological change in the U.S., he would argue, was probably something like the 1920s because that was when you had cars and radios and indoor plumbing. And he likes to say, you know, if you had to give up stuff first, would it be your smartphone or your indoor plumbing? And, um, you know, indoor plumbing's a, it's a big one. <laughs> um, and, so, um, like and so he thinks that, that we had our big boost of productivity and that we had this little mini boost in the 90s, but basically we're on a slow track now. Um, there's an economist at Chad, named Chad Jones out at Stanford, and Chad has this interesting graph where he graphs the number of people in the U.S. economy who work on technology stuff, you know, engineers, scientists, all those kinds of people. And you can imagine over time the number of people working on science and technology stuff goes up and up and up and up as you get more universities, more PhDs, more people doing research. And at the same time, the amount of productivity growth is flat, 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 flat. And the, the, what Chad draws as a conclusion from that is it's getting harder and harder to get productivity growth. Everything has diminishing returns, and we're putting all this money into research, and we're getting not a whole lot out of it. So I think you can go the other way to if things are taking a while, and I, I tend to be more of an optimist, but there's a legitimate intellectual case on oh, the yeah. other side. There is. Um, and just, just to toss in one other theory that's in there, which is that if you look at businesses that are basically digital, businesses that are basically information technology driven, their productivity is running like about is running at a very high rate, 2.8, 2.93%. Then you look at manufacturing, um, hospitals, education, very, very low rates, barely above zero rates of productivity. And so again, this is part of that delayed um, you know, at what point it's that where you, where information technologies and businesses are built around it, you do have high productivity. But the real question, if you look at, you know, you just walk around uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, you look at all those colleges, you look at all the, all the hospitals, you look at a lot of these service sector businesses, and until you start really seeing the productivity gains there, we'll stay in a world of low productivity. 
Oh, yeah. so you had one yeah. thought there, yeah, which yeah. is I just think interesting. Um, we can so do this all, I know. all night, you know. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, there's some interesting studies out from the OECD and other folks where they um, they graph for like countries all over the world and industries all over the world what they call leading firms, which are the top hundred firms by productivity in that industry, and all the rest. And one of the interesting things you see in the last 15 years or so is that the leading firms, not just in information technology, but in all areas, their productivity is going up quite a lot. And the f other firms are not tracking behind them. They're consistently falling further and further behind. And so we seem to be in, a, in an economy, not just in the US, but around the world, where some firms have really figured it out and others haven't. And if you're working for one of those firms that figured it out, your life is great. And if not, you're sort of scraping along a little bit. Okay, uh, we're, we're out of time just about for the first half of the show. And I should say, in the second half of the show, we, we're going to open it up for you all to ask questions. And there's so many other topics I want to get to. So I'll just end this first half with this. So what are we all going to do when the robots take over our jobs? <laughs> <laughs> the robots are going to assist you to do a better job. For I, now. I, for, I, actually, I think that, you know, if you look at the history, you know, in it, you know you can, history doesn't mean that it's what's happened in the past always going to happen in the future. But basically the story is that jobs are destroyed, but new jobs are created. And when it comes to technology, a lot of those jobs is using the technology to ease a lot of your physical demands in order to be able to increase using other skills. So I think it's really a story about changing skills and the distribution of income, which is incredibly important, otherwise known as income inequality. It is not about mass unemployment. I think that that is the risk may be there, but I don't think that is the real risk. Do you want to speak up for the Luddites or... Uh... <laughs> um. Long time ago, uh, about 1930, uh, John Maynard Keynes wrote a big essay about the economic possibilities for his grandchildren, and he predicted then that um, that by the, this point in history, about a century later, uh, people would be working a 15-hour week because um, you know what could they be doing? I mean, there'd be all this automation. They uh, they're just. He said people you know like to do a little work, but 15 hours a week is probably enough for most of us, and so we won't really want to do any more than that. And um, and what the saving grace was over and over and over was um, very few people are want to work 15 hours a week and have the standard of living that goes with it. You know, you want a 1970 standard of living with 1970 healthcare and 1970 life and um, appliances and all the rest. You can afford that on 15, 20 hours a week. Um, but people don't make that choice. And so it ultimately bails out the economy over and over and over again is people want more stuff. And more stuff drives it forward. <laughs> well, on that avaristic note, please, a tremendous round of applause for our two guests. All right. We have lots of good questions. But more importantly, uh, we started the show tonight with a little bit of Brandon Bits. Uh, right now, we're going to have at least we're going to have one uh, Professor Tim Taylor bit because he just told me he has an economics joke that he's going to tell us. So a uh, big round of applause. Tim Taylor time. So uh, this story starts uh, with Dr. Frankenstein, who you all know is creating a monster. And uh, he's building his monster and getting all the parts, buying them down at the body shop and so on. And he gets down to the very end, and he's got the monster all put together except for the brain. So this being an economics joke, there's, of course, a store where you can go buy whatever you need. So he goes down to the brain store in order to shop for brains and says to the guy behind the counter, um, uh, you know, my monster's almost ready. What do you got in stock? 
And the guy behind the counter says, well, I've got some very nice physicist brains at $30 a pound. And uh, Frankenstein says, somehow, I, I don't know, I'm just not envisioning my monster as a physicist. Um, he says, well, I've got some, I've got some very nice uh, philosopher brains at $50 a pound. He says, well, I don't know, I'm, I'm not quite seeing my monster as a philosopher either. Um, what else? And the guy behind the counter says, well, I've got some economist brains at $100 a pound. And, uh, and Frankenstein says, that seems, that seems insane. Why are economist brains so expensive? And, and the guy behind the counter says, do you have any idea how many economists it takes to get a pound of brains? <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's our show, everybody. Good night. Uh, all right, so you said you had a good question. You said that price-earnings ratios are at an historical high, but my understanding is that based on trailing 12 months and projected future 12 months earnings, price earnings ratios are pretty much within the normal range. How, what is the measure by which they're starting? I'm using high? a, I'm referring specifically to a Schiller PE index, which is a 10 year average rather than a one year plus Ooh. or minus. But wow, there is the, a lot, <laughs> a lot of words in there. Yeah. Just, if, can we, I, you want me to unpack? Unpack, unpack maybe back. just a half step, yeah. So there's a guy named Robert just Schiller. Just for the people in the back, I'm sure. <laughs> there's uh, a guy named Robert Schiller who won a Nobel Prize for finance a few years back. And, um, and the problem with looking at prices and earnings, as, as the question makes clear, is in any given year, earnings might go up or down or prices might go up or down. So you don't want to just look at one year. You want to average over time. And so you get sort of a more realistic idea of where you really stand. And so one way of doing that is to average a year forward and guess what it'll be a year into the future. Um, and I'm always a little allergic to guessing about the future. Um, what Schiller suggested doing um, was to average over the previous 10 years. And so that gives you sort of a rolling average over time. Um, no guarantee that it's better. I mean, it's just different. Um, but, but Schiller's 10-year uh, PE is, uh, is way up there. Okay. Yes? Okay. I, I, got, I had a hand here, and then I'll go there. I'm going to jump all over the place. Hey. I'd like to hear more about inequality, because it seems to me that um, not everyone is actually employed, and that varies by race and class and education level. And similarly, income seems to be uh, varying a lot by those things as well, and it seems to be getting worse, and everyone seems to agree that it gets worse, and it's not getting better. <laughs> so what the heck is happening, and how do we get better? So it is a great question, and you're absolutely right. I mean, income inequality has been one of the, the trends that's been going on really sort of, you know, since the late 1970s, early 1980s, and it's been getting worse and worse. And there's a movement to try and say, well, it's not really as bad as you think it is if you adjust for consumption. But actually, when people are pretty careful when they look at consumption, you still end up with the same story about rising income inequality. And then as you break it down by race or, or various other measures, um, you know, people are doing much worse. I think the bottom line is that this is an economy where the rewards of the economy are increasingly concentrated among a small group of people, the 1%. And, um, and this is really the, the fundamental concern that we have as a society. And there's been a long-term theory that really what this reflected were returns to skill. And so lots of people were falling behind, didn't have high skill. I think that when you now look what's happening, there are a couple of things. One is, uh, which was Tim was mentioning about firms making the concentration of wealth in firms. And if you happen to work for one of those firms, 
you do really well. And if you're not working with those firms, you do much less. There's also the way the, the politics have been set up where there's actually a lot of upward redistribution of income as opposed to, and actually relatively uh, low income people pay relatively high taxes, for example, not able to take a lot of advantages. So a big part of this is capital is taking more, labor is taking less, and it is fundamentally an issue of politics and less an issue of technology. Professor, is there anything to add or rebut? Well, I, I might just throw into the mix that often the way an economists talk about this, they sort of talk about is it the market forces that are happening? Like is there something about current technology trends which in lingo are skill biased where the technology tends to help people with certain skills. And the analogy that's sometimes given is, um, you know, 40 years ago, imagine that you were head of a sales force. There might be, you know, 200 salespeople out there. And then there were, like, regional sales managers, and then there were people who kept track of the regional sales manager, and they all reported up the pyramid to you, right? But with information technology, all those middle levels got stripped out because the person at the top can use software to keep track of all several hundred sales managers. And so the technology made that person at the top enormously more productive than they would otherwise been. So that's kind of an economically-based explanation. There are also institutional-based, and institutional-based things would be like, in the 1990s, it became extraordinarily popular for a variety of reasons to pay executives with stock options. And those stock options just ratcheted up the top pay of CEOs enormously. The minimum wage has been relatively flat. So those are institutions rather than economic things. Well, if I can... Uh, so to, those things yeah. all fight back and forth against each other. I think it's one of the things where there's a lot in the mix. And then the, the final thing that Chris mentioned before is, um, you know, we're in an economy where starting in about 2000... Um, you know, 800 million Chinese workers entered the global economy, and they were low-paid, and they were highly productive. And so all of a sudden, a whole lot of people found themselves in competition with 800 million Chinese workers they really hadn't been competing with before. And so you put together the technology and the institutions and the global economy, and I think you get something close to the story. But it's been going on, as Chris said, for 40 years. It's, it's really not a new thing. And I want to just add one other thing to this, not, not to go, but it's also when you look at... Uh, who's at the top? Uh, it's limited competition. Doctors and lawyers are very heavily represented in the top. And so one of the things that has always puzzled me is that if you, you know, if you want to bring down our health care costs and you believe in markets, we should have free trade in doctors. And so you should be able to be a doctor from around the world, pass some sort of test, come here and um, that's usually a way for me to be run out of town if I'm talking to a group of professionals about this is the way we should go. And they come up with all kinds of reasons, but I still come back to a fundamental question. If free trade is good for auto workers and the auto industry, why isn't free trade good for other professions? So, so I'm going to go here because she let me borrow her pen. So. <laughs> So we recently saw a restructuring of the tax plan for the nation for the first time since the 1980s. And as I look at it, I see some short-term gains but some long-term pains. And I don't think we're hearing about the long-term pains, and I'd love to hear what you think about that. My favorite question, do deficits matter? <laughs> so just very quickly, so initially there was a vague hope that we might have something called tax reform. I think what we ended up with was a tax cut. And, um, and not only a tax cut, 
But a tax cut that has some bizarre aspects, like for example, the way that, you know, most businesses in the United States are what are called pass-throughs. So limited liability corporation, an S corporation. And um, the laws were written in a way that um, it's, it, it looks like the pass-throughs are really benefited, but only if you're doing something that we like. So if you're um, uh, in, in certain consulting businesses, you don't get a benefit, but you're in certain manufacturing businesses, you're going to get a benefit. So it's created a massive amount of tax confusion. And at the same time, what everybody expected to happen has happened. All of a sudden now, we can't afford Social Security. We can't afford job training. We can't afford early childhood education. We can't afford family leave policies. And that, I think, is one of the long-term effects of what happened with this tax change. Um, so this may be one where Chris and I have slightly different angles, at least, since we agree on a lot of things. Um, the the what makes markets. There you go. The, the, the estimates are that the tax bill costs about $100 billion a year. Um, so that's big money at some level. But in the context of an $18 trillion economy, I don't think it's that much, frankly. Um, the uh, Obamacare legislation spent an extra, spends about every year about an extra $100, $120 billion a year to expand health insurance coverage. And I don't have a problem with that, even though it also adds $100, $120 billion a year. So I think it's about what the priorities are. What are you getting for your $100, $120 billion a year? The economy is so enormous that... Um, even with that extra uh, revenue lost, you actually don't fall that far behind. Um, what do you get for it? What you get for it is a reshaping of the corporate tax code. And essentially, that's um, in broad terms an enormous gamble. And the gamble is um, if we give business the tax cut they want, and just to be clear, the Obama folks were writing about the need for corporate tax reform and lower corporate rates in 2016. So this is not... There, there is some sense the, the Trump people meant much further than, the, than they would have, but it being a problem was a bipartisan thing. Um, and um, the hope is that you encourage business to do a lot more investment. And if you give business some reason to invest a lot more, that would be a healthy thing for the economy. Now, my own sense, you know, for what it's worth, is that um, just giving a giant tax cut is not the best investment incentive. And so my sense is that you're spending that 100 to 120 billion a year, um, and you're not going to get the payoff you expect. And so that's why it's a bad thing. I mean, if you got the payoff, then then you could justify it. But I don't think the payoff's out there. Okay, I have a bunch of questions. I want to ask the question that's in the brochure or the oh, wow, little program. Yeah. Whoa. And it talks about um, the Economic Policy Institute compared the economic performance of Minnesota to Wisconsin <laughs> and found that Minnesota had better growth in wages, job in, income, and population. Is it due to Democrat versus Republican leadership, or is it something more? We, I want so Minnesota versus Wisconsin, remember where you are right now, but go on. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it, two quick comments. One is I do think that um, the notion that tax cuts pay for themselves has been again and again proven false. And we saw that in Wisconsin. We saw that in Kansas. So, I mean, you can sort of look. Secondly, what is really important is investment in education and your infrastructure and uh, you know, the quality of life of your broader society. 
And so I think there has been this notion that if you clamp down on, on the public sector and you cut your taxes and you become a low-tax state, that you're going to end up with a lot of magical growth. But in a sense, you could also come back and say you get what you pay for. And in... Um, you know, we're moving toward an economy. I mean, no matter what this conversation we're having, we're moving toward an economy where information technologies are growing, where healthcare is a bigger part of our economy, education is a bigger part of our economy. And so that investment in infrastructure, education, um, I think has, and fiscal responsibility. So not having on the state level a big budget deficit and fiscal responsibility, I think, has paid off enormously. Professor, if I can just maybe reframe the question slightly in the sense of uh, what's Minnesota's economic advantage, right? Like yeah. that's sort of yeah. the... So uh, let me tell you yeah. that Minnesota and Wisconsin, although we love to compare them side <laughs> by side, are really different states. And they're really different for a couple reasons. One is we have a real city, a real urban area. Wisconsin doesn't. Um, Milwaukee doesn't count. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, and, 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 and urban areas are, um, urban areas are in the economy we've been living in the last 20 years, urban areas are where the growth and the action is. Yeah. People who work in cities usually get paid about 30% more for very similar jobs than people who don't work in cities. And so being in a state with a big city is in, or big urban area is an enormous advantage. Um, I mean, like if you compare Minnesota and Montana, the populations are not that different. We have a city, Montana doesn't. That's where the difference comes from. Wisconsin is, in many ways, economically speaking, a suburb of Illinois, suburb of Chicago. And and when um and when and and when um there is and, somebody in the audience who is going to be waiting for you outside. And and when um and when Illinois and Chicago shed ec- economy. One of the places people can flee over the border is to, uh, is to Wisconsin. And so, um, I, I mean, agreeing with Chris said about building things, but there's a really big difference between comparing a state with a really large so, functional urban metro area and one which is leeching off the state next does, door's dysfunction. Does, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Economist knows how to throw punches. All right. But just just to put this in sight, uh, to put this in because the part of the question, uh, or to put this in prescriptive terms, then does that mean that Minnesota's, again, economic advantage is that we have a city, and so it should be that we, sh- that should be our focus, that we should be sort of trying to lift that up and try and make that stronger and better because that's what makes us different than these other places. It's sort of our, it's our edge over them. Well, I, I've, One of the really interesting things about Minnesota as a state is if you rank all the states in terms of per capita output, not great gross state product, not gross national product, but per capita size, Minnesota's in the top 10 of all states. And if you rank all states in terms of affordability of housing, Minnesota is also in the top 10 of affordable housing in terms of states. We're the only state that's in the top 10 of both. Um, We're one of the very few states that both has a fairly strong economy and where people can also afford a home. Um, Most of the states where most people own homes are states like West Virginia, where everybody owns a home, but the economy is not exactly booming. And so to me, Minnesota, you sort of have to think about what's your strength. And our strength is this combination of um, having an urban area, 
but also having relatively affordable housing and having the ability, as they say, to get to these other places around the state and for other places to get here. So I'm a, actually a big fan of figuring out ways to boost uh, greater Minnesota, as the phrase goes, and to tie it more to the Twin Cities. But I think uh, those are things we haven't taken advantage of enough. But that's what Minnesota has to offer. Okay. And oh. that leads to, I mean, just very quickly, I mean, that's where public transportation, because this city is growing. This region is growing. So that's where public transportation becomes incredibly important. That's where, you know, affordable housing and increasing up the affordable housing stock, because that is this competitive advantage, as he's saying. But it will take investment. Okay. We, did you have a question here? You have something written down. <laughs> The economy historically uh, it grows through consumption. Uh, in the meantime, with the climate imperative, we need to reduce consumption of resources or change consumption of resources. Could you comment on that? Oh, yeah. well, climate I would say that what the economy really grows by over time is productivity. Yeah. Um, and, and so as, as people become more productive, that's really what drives that. But you're right that productivity and consumption sort of go hand in hand in hand. The question is, what are we consuming, right? And so um, it's true in the U.S. economy, for example, that if you look at burning of fossil fuel per GDP created, we've moved toward an economy which was less and less energy-burning intensive. And the more we move toward you know, t using tiny little electrical things which can be powered off windmills, there's certainly a path that you can get from more consumption without necessarily burning dirty energy. My own um, sense of that problem more broadly is that, um, you know, we like to think so many times that the U.S. economy sort of rules in these issues because we have many, many decades of the U.S. economy being biggest and most important. But, um, you know, the biggest economy in the world now is probably already China. And in another 20 years, the second biggest economy will be India. And they're both burning an awful lot of dirty coal. And so when I worry about climate change, I don't worry as much about U.S. consumption as I do about what could we possibly do to get those two countries, which are going to have bigger economies than we do, on a much cleaner path much sooner. And that's also where I think this word certainty does actually start, has a real role to play. So if, you know, I think most economists, if you're asking about global climate change, what they would say is raise the tax, put it across the board, raise the carbon tax, set it at a level, and then entrepreneurs will adjust and the market will adjust and they'll figure out ways to deliver goods and services and experience at using a lot less energy. Because you can never underestimate the ability of the American entrepreneur to pick your pocket. But what you do have to do is set the rules of the game so that if you want to have a less energy-intensive economy, which we're moving toward, but you want to accelerate that, if you have an across-the-board carbon tax, for example, which is very, the politics of that are incredibly difficult, but that's where I do think markets are incredibly powerful. Reset the rules of the game. You want to be less, use less, less car, you want to have less um, effect of, of our economy on the environment, and then, whether it's solar, whether it's wind, whatever, the entrepreneurs will figure that out at a remarkably fast pace. I just had like an elementary economics question, which is growth, right? So like the, the, the national economy, a lot of what we talk about, a lot of our motivations are based on growth and 3%, 2%, 4%. 
uh, why growth? Uh, it, or why are we not satisfied with uh, the way it is today? And that's I know that's there's an easy answer to that question, but I'm curious. human nature. <laughs> well, to, to, to what extent? Let, let me give you two answers to it because I, I think it's a good a good deep question. One is um, we need growth because there's so many people who are poor and hungry and ill-educated, and either we try and take from some and help them, which is not a real successful social strategy, or we have enough growth to help lift them up. If you look around at the world economy, um, you know the number of people living on, say, a dollar a day consumption or something like that, global poverty line, has gone down by something like 800 million over the last 20 years, mainly as a result of China taking off. Uh, that seems to me a good thing. And, and so, you know, I, I know I'm bringing in poor countries rather than rich ones, but part of the answer is even in the U.S. there's a lot of people who need more stuff, and I don't see any other way to get it to them. Um, the other answer is that you can step off the growth carousel, and countries do that. Um, you know, in the beginning of the 20th century, Argentina was probably third or fourth richest country in the world on a per-person basis. Uh, by about 1950, the United Kingdom was the richest country in Europe. And now, you know, Argentina is... 110th in the world, and the UK is you know, below the average and sinking with Brexit. <laughs> um, and people aren't happy about that. So you know, we could step off the growth carousel, or you personally can, um, <laughs> but looking around the world, no, Please no, don't. people can. You know, it, I mean, you, you can live in a country, you can, be, you know, you can become Amish, you know? <laughs> I mean, you can do things that dramatically mean you're not going to play that game. And that's legitimate personal choice. But for an entire country to step off means the rest of the world's not going to stop. And in, you know, 30 years, 40 years, if you look around at the world that then exists, that may not be the world you really want. So it's hard to think about. But it is an important question to ask, as you said, because what it really raises is what's the quality of life? Because a lot of policies are justified. This is going to boost growth. And that seems to be, and the conversation stops there. But a lot of policies that boost growth may not increase the quality of life, which was raised by an earlier question. So I think it's always important to be talking about what's the quality of life? What is going to be the effect? Is this going to, you know, one way of looking at our economy is the only thing you really should care about is median income and below. And, you know, creating more and more opportunities for people who are median income and below. What is going to be their quality of life? What is going to be their economic opportunities? What is going to be their social mobility? And when, one of the things that, that uh, there's been a, a number of economic studies is that when we're growing, we tend to be more generous. Hmm. We tend to ask these kinds of questions more openly as opposed to being fearful about it and feeling that I'm going to lose everything. But I do think it, uh, that... So growth can be a shorthand for saying quality of life, but a lot of times we don't think about that enough and bring that to the fore. And I totally agree that if you, know, if you say to me, well, there's going to be growth, but there's going to be you know, bad air and climate change, you know, of course, I don't buy that option. Yeah. But, um, so the question is, can you... But, but I, you know, there's just a lot of people who need a lot of stuff in this world, and I... And I I think if you don't have growth, you write them off. And that's really what politically it comes to. So. Well, wait. Oh, no, we're out of time. Don't write these guys off. Please, a big round of applause for both of our amazing guests.
Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend a show in person or even work with us, you can find out more information at our website at www.t2p2.net. This activity was made possible by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Metropolitan Regional Arts Council, thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.